0: Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nathan, and I am here with my co-host, Karen Henson. What up? What up, what up? Glad to be here. What you doing?
1: Oh, you know, podcasting.
0: Mm, we podcast. It's what we do.
1: It's what we do. Who are
0: we talking to today?
1: Dr. Doug. <laughs> I got nervous on how to say his last name, so I stopped talking. <laughs>
0: uh, uh, where are you? Do you mean Dr. Doug Grop?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: The super smart guy from Harvard.
1: Yeah, it's only slightly intimidating.
0: Yeah, Doug got his PhD from Harvard and then joined the editorial committee, the International Editorial Committee for the Dead Sea Scrolls and is a super smart guy. So we're going to talk Dead Sea Scrolls today. It should be awesome. You guys enjoy this episode. (laughs) Today we have in the studio with us Dr. Doug Gropp. He is a buddy of mine. We've known each other for a couple of years now because we serve on the same C.S. Lewis Institute board here in Dallas, Texas. And as I got to know Doug, I very quickly realized that, oh, th- this guy is uh, no slouch. <laughs> <laughs> so Doug, Doug got his PhD from Harvard in Old Testament and Ancient Near Eastern Studies And in 1986, were you at the Catholic University when they- No, I was
2: finishing up my dissertation. You
0: were finishing your dissertation and your advisors invited you on, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So in 1986, he joined the international team of editors for the Dead Sea Scrolls and then went on to teach at Catholic University of America for about 20 years. He was uh, just advising PhD students through their work and then has moved to Dallas and taught at Redeemer for a little bit and then did a- a visiting professorship at Johns Hopkins University. So Doug, thanks for being on the podcast with us, Thank man. You. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of we were talking a second ago. It was like, man, Doug's been everywhere. It's like
1: <laughs> hearing you introduce him, I'm like, man, I'm the slouch. I know, right? I'm glad <laughs> I get to sit at the table. <laughs> thanks for inviting yeah, me. Yeah.
0: yeah, you sit down with somebody like this and you're like, yeah, i, I just don't know that much. Um, but we're we're excited to have you in the Thank studio you. with us and we're gonna talk Dead Sea Scrolls. But first, man, I'd just love to hear from you. What got you into this field of study and what's been that journey for you?
2: I mean, for me, it was the interest in in the Bible, Old and New Testament, beginning in my college years and studying already in college, Hebrew and Greek and, and going to seminary afterwards and sort of slowly moving more and more in the Old Testament with the idea that it's easier to understand the new testament from the point of view of the old testament than the other way around yeah it's good once you you go a f- little farther in the old testament then you're into old testament backgrounds <laughs> ancient near eastern backgrounds of the old testament and uh Harvard was one of the best places to go to get those backgrounds, and so that became my focus.
0: So, talk to us about when you came on to that international team in 1986. I mean, what did you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls at that time? And when you came on, I mean, what? Yeah. Where were the scrolls in their de- in their development of just being published and that sort of thing? Like, what did what did that look like when you first entered into this
2: field? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the first main seven almost complete scrolls that were discovered were published very quickly by Israelis in the first few years after their discovery. But especially the scrolls from Qumran Cave 4 that were discovered in 1952 were very, very fragmentary, and the publication was at a snail's pace, Mm -hmm. just reconstructing them, putting them together, trying to figure out what are they, and there were too few people working on them. So, it was really slow. There was a, there was a building pressure in the outside world, mm-hmm. both scroll scholars and popular writers yep. who started to view this slowness of publication in more insidious terms. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. conspiracy, Conspiracies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's the context
0: in which I... Yeah, so you know, step in in that moment and, and start to work right. on...
2: And that's one of the reasons why, because they felt the need at this point to expand the team of editors. Mm, yeah. and, and so
1: just for our listeners, Qumran is a location, a city location around the Dead... It's,
2: yeah, it's a, it's a ruins. List. It's a mm. ruins that's down by the Dead Sea, very near Jericho. And um, there's a kind of a ruin there that is controversial archaeologically, but appears to be the community center for this Qumran community. Mm
1: -hmm. And then you listed the cave numbers. So there's multiple caves these scrolls were found in. So help us understand what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? (laughs) Okay,
2: well, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, you can understand them in a broader or a narrower sense. What most people think of is... All the religious texts from this Qumran community, where there were 11 caves, where there were written materials found in 11 caves. But there were there are caves nine miles north of Jericho, down to Masada, and even a little farther down the Dead Sea, where other fragments of texts were found in very similar dry environments. So
0: basically, when most people think about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they think about, hey, there's this northwest corner of the right. Dead Sea where the Qumran community right. was. But actually the Dead Sea Scrolls in reality encompass a much broader yeah, region. So there's like
2: nine different distinct sites. Yeah, it's like
0: go up so from Qumran on the northwest corner of the Dead Sea. Keep going north along the Jordan River about nine miles. And then um, you also can go south from there down to Masada mm-hmm. on the western uh, side right. of the Dead Sea. Right. And, and there's scrolls found in that whole region.
2: That's right. And and the extended date from uh, the scrolls that I worked on, which were in the farther northern mm-hmm. sector of that, are from the 4th century BC. Yeah. Um, which is but, really old.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's well, Alexander, the great-
2: Right, the uh, Qumran scrolls. Man. We'll talk about the dating of the yeah, Qumran yeah, scrolls. Yeah. But the uh, some of the other caves are from the first and second centuries of the common era around the time of the first, but particularly the second Jewish revolt, mm-hmm. which was 132 to 135.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so you have the first revolt in seventy. That some if if you're, you know, a student of biblical history or just history in general you have this revolt in 70 that where Jerusalem is destroyed, yeah. the Jews retreat to Masada, the Romans come up, they all commit suicide. It's crazy.
2: Right. Um, That's 73 when that revolt Yeah, ends. right, right. That's
0: 70 to 73. And then, there, but then there's a a lot of people don't know about the second one, which is- The
2: second is, one is extremely important. Yeah, right. But it builds up.
0: There's yeah. this build up again. And and uh, who's the guy that was named the Messiah? Bar- yeah.
2: His name was, we know- from these caves, we know that his name was actually Bar Kosaba. Mm. So, we have his name there. We ha- never had his name before, but he was renamed Bar Kochba by the most important rabbi of the time, Rabbi Akiva.
0: And so, this other Jewish revolt comes up and it's squished again.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of revolting
0: yeah. and squishing. So, the scrolls are, are there. And then how do we... Uh, learn that they're actually there. How did the modern era find them?
2: I mean, there's a there's a story that's told over and over again about a Bedouin shepherd boy coming over the edge of a cave, uh, seeing a hole, and dropping stones in, and hearing a kind of a a hollow clink of a. Uh, you know pot, broken pottery yeah. and i think the next day or very soon thereafter he and several others descended to the cave and and discovered these scrolls yeah which cave was that do we that know? was cave 1 okay cool. we think yeah that was in 1947 though some people say 1946 yeah you know just a few things were happening in the world during that time <laughs> yes right at that chaos right you know, right chaos. it's shortly thereafter was the un vote Of partition. That was November 1st, 1947, for the partition of Palestine. At that time, it was under British authority. Uh, That whole area was under the British mandate. And it was only six months, seven months. Uh, later, that Israel declared its independence um, in ni- May 1948. Yeah, wow. And all of this was going on in the background when the Dead Sea Scrolls first came to light. So it was a particular tribe of Bedouin that made this discovery, the Ta'amira tribe of Bedouin. And they went on to make most of the discovery, yeah, yeah. Uh, we found a little he, bit
0: here. Let's go look over there. Yes, <laughs> yeah.
2: yes, and uh, then the the general pattern was that archaeologists then went out and by questioning the Bedouin uh, figured out where the spot might be mm. and and then uh, did some excavation, found scraps, yep. but just enough scraps to show that that this is indeed the cave where, in in the case of cave one, for instance, mm-hmm. this is indeed the cave where these scrolls came from. Yeah.
0: So when the Bedouins found them, did they pull them out themselves?
2: Yes, they pulled them out themselves. And, you know, the story is they hung them on something like clotheslines, you know, letting them dry or something nice. for yeah. some time. So they were exposed to the weather. Interesting. You know, for a while. Then they would go and they would use a middleman nicknamed Kando, who was a Bethlehem cobbler, but also who became an antiquities dealer. <laughs>
1: um, and seized the opportunity. Naturally.
2: He was a, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he was a Christian, Arab Christian of the Syrian Orthodox Church. Mm. And um, he was the middleman for almost all of the discoveries that the Ta'amira Bedouin made. Yeah. And then he gave the t- Mira Bedouin basically $50 per scroll. Then he would turn around and sell them to Western institutions. For uh, a lot more. Yeah. Well, not that much more. <laughs> really? By today's standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, then they would, the Western scholars would be given rights to publication. Yeah.
1: So yeah. they pull these scrolls out. Help us understand. Do they understand the significance of it? Even as they're being passed through hands of different people, do we understand that this is a really big deal or are they just some really well, old sheets of paper?
2: Yeah, I think the, the Bedouin, you know, probably discovered slowly just that people wanted them. So not because they understood what they were looking at. And uh, I'm not sure how much Kondo understood what he was looking at at first, but he had, he was consulting people in the Syrian Orthodox Church and then the, the Albright Institute, which was right there in East Jerusalem, and École Biblique, which was also in Eastern Jerusalem. So, gradually it dawned on people how important they were. There were also uh, important Israeli scholars who looked at them initially.
0: Mm. So, at what point did, But because you're talking about a process here that took, I'm, I'm sure, years. Yes, um, And... At what point did people begin to realize, hey, this is a really, because we're talking about one of the most significant yeah, manuscripts in history. Certainly. So, at what point did they realize, like, this is, this is really significant?
2: Well, I think some people realized very quickly and other, and there was some debate in the very earliest years about how old these manuscripts were mm-hmm. and so on. And how do, just very quickly, how do we know how old they are? That's a good question. Well, mainly through the process of paleographical dating. That is, dating, the way, you know, handwriting changes over time.
1: Thank you for defining that. Let's go in. And
2: and paleography (laughs) is old writing. Okay. Yeah, studying old writing. And, of course, they didn't have computers. They didn't have typewriters. So, scribes would write, and they would... Right, generation to generation, the form of their letters would change over time. And, so uh, wait,
0: the Dead Sea Scrolls are not all in papyrus font?
1: <laughs> <laughs> what? <That's> unbelievable. What?
2: <laughs> Shocker. <Hilarious>. So, <laughs> so there were a few experts in, in this paleographical dating, dating the script. And uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, we didn't have that many texts from a relevant period. And paleographical dating really is all, it's a relative dating. It right. doesn't, there isn't an absolute chronology involved. Mm. But it could be refined more and more over time. So the according to the paleographical dating, in my Professor Frank Moore Cross was possibly the leading expert on this. The scrolls range in date. I'm talking about the Qumran scrolls here. The, mm-hmm. the Qumran scrolls range in date from let's say mid 3rd century before the common era. That's 250 or mm-hmm. so, let's mm-hmm. say to uh, into the 1st century of the common era. Sixty-eight is the is the date usually given because that's when that was when the Jewish div- revolt was happening mm-hmm. and where Jericho the nearby Jericho was conquered. Got it. So it's presumed that the Qumran ruins were also taken by the Romans. There's a Roman camp outside the ruins in sixty-eight.
1: So just to make sure that I understand correctly, we pull these scrolls out, and by the way that the script actually looks and has transformed over time, right. we're able to look at it and say, "Hey, because these letters essentially uh-huh. look the way that they do, we right. can date it from third century
2: through the six- through right. sixty eight AD. Yeah, and there's okay. quite a there's a quite a range there. Those dates are sort of corroborated by carbon fourteen dating which is radioactive mm-hmm. carbon, uh, which decays at a regular rate. And carbon-14 dating has gotten a lot more sophisticated with accelerator mass spectrometry. And that's that's the form of carbon-14 dating they've used. And that generally cor- corroborates the paleographical dating. Mm-hmm. Then there's the archaeology of the ruins itself. And that's relative dating too, but there's, coins found at the site and the coins generally come from the very end of the second century of the, before the common era to that period, that paleogram. Yeah. So the coin,
0: the reason coins are important in this stuff is because they're, they're almost like time markers, right? It's like, Oh, this coin has this Caesar's name on it, or this coin has this on it. And so we know, well, obviously this, this didn't come before that time, right? And th- those are ways that they help right. us figure that out.
2: So most of the coins, by far, came from the first century before the common era, mm. or the first con- century BC.
1: So you mentioned it briefly, but help us understand who these scrolls belong to. So they're they're in this community. They've been right. hidden in these caves. Who who wrote them?
2: Okay, so that's that's a big <laughs> that's a big question. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. And. Uh, <laughs> And that's that's a sort of a controversial point. It does seem to be the scrolls are in Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, mainly in Hebrew, a minority in Aramaic and just a few in Greek, okay? Mm-hmm. And the scrolls could be divided into let's say the scrolls that including biblical texts that the community, Qumran community, presumed Qumran community cherished. The Aramaic texts don't seem to have been written by them, it seems to have been cherished by them as well. But then there's a group of texts that use a similar scribal practice, have similar scribal characteristics, but also have the same kind of thematic interests and so on. Mm-hmm. So that I think we are really justified, this is the majority view, we are justified in calling them sectarian texts. So what is the nature of that Qumran sect? Mm. Um, And by sectarian text, you mean there was a a
0: group of people who believed in a certain type of ideology or something like that, and they are producing... These texts, right. so you're not—they're not coming from a wide variety of viewpoints,
2: right? They're—they're
0: they're right. saying this is our sect believes this. There
2: does seem to be a coherent worldview,
0: yeah, and and we know that because, like, to translate it to the modern era, if you know someone, or or even if you don't know someone, but you're consistently reading letters or emails or or the news, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I read something that has a more like liberal slant then even if it doesn't have a name on it I'm going to be like oh that's probably like CNN or something like that and if I th- read something with right. a more conservative I'm be like oh that's Fox News yeah. you know so I'm right. um, so we know that that's coming from a community because it's reading very similar
2: Yeah, to- and using even similar language and phrases and all of that we know from some of the documents that Well, we know that it was a very priestly-oriented community. The community is centered around priests. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a dissident community. They seem to reject the cult that's going on in the Jerusalem Jerusalem. temple at the time. And then we know that where we learn from later rabbinic literature differences outlined between Pharisees on the one hand and Sadducees on the other, we know that the Qumran community, their views on what cultic purity is, seem to align with the Sadducean view more than the Pharisaic view. The Pharisees, the later rabbis, look back to the Pharisees as their predecessors. Mm-hmm. And so, it's a very different Jewish group than the Jewish group that Sort of formed later rabbinic Judaism, which has become our traditional Judaism of today. So we have
0: we have these texts. They're in a cave for a long time. (laughs) A Bedouin tribe pulls them out. They begin to get brokered out to these different institutions and people. And we know that it's written by a certain uh, sectarian group in in the Qumran community. Right. So walk us through, like, from the time they're discovered, walk us through kind of the political intrigue of these up until, like, present day.
2: Okay, so when they were first discovered... Qumran is under the authority of the British Mandate, Mm -hmm. okay? But as soon as Israel declared its independence, they were descended upon by Arab states, including Jordan. As a result of the Jewish War of Independence, Jordan occupied the West Bank where Qumran was and um the parts that Israel did not retain in the in the armistice lines, mm-hmm. Jordan had control over. And so...
0: Which is where the, like now you hear Israel, the West Bank, Jordan, that's where all those dividing lines
2: came right. from. Right. And Jordan annexed the area of Qumran in, I think, 1950. The, in East Jerusalem, the... There was this museum, Palestinian Archaeological Museum, which was later renamed the Rockefeller Museum. That's Mm -hmm. what it's called today, generally. Housed most of the scrolls, and that came under Jordanian control. So it was there for under the Jordanian Antiquities Authority. Mm -hmm. I think originally, scrolls were still being discovered under this Jordanian period, particularly the largest, well, the cave... Where the mother load of the Qumran scrolls, Cave Four, were discovered, very fragmentary.
0: And Cave Four is the one that most people probably have seen in the that's these iconic true. photos that's true. of yeah. kind of the, looks like a little window in the right. side of a rock face. Yeah, that's Cave Four, and that's where they found the mother load.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so what was... you're saying is, it looks like a cave.
2: <laughs> it looks like a cave. That's in 1952, and it was under Jor- Jordanian control. Yes. At that point, yeah. So. It was under Jordanian authority that the initial team of editors, particularly to to publish all the many fragments in Cave 4, was under the authority of the Jordanian Antiquities Authority, Mm -hmm. which meant uh, that there was no way that they were going to allow Jewish or Israeli scholars Mm. to be part of the team. So, they constructed an international team of eight, as it happened, I think... The majority of those were Roman Catholic, and four of them were actual Roman Catholic priests. So that thus the birth of a conspiracy. Thus the birth of the conspiracy, <laughs> the, with a slow publication. Yeah, combined with Roman Catholic. Um, What is the Vatican hiding? Yeah, right.
1: So So what is the Vatican
2: hiding?
0: You're on the hot seat now. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. No, but I think uh, it is interesting to note, though, that the vast majority of reasons for slow publication don't have anything to do with... It's a lot more boring than people would like to believe. Right. I mean, it's like this guy has some life issue he has to deal with. This guy... Has uh, something else that some other deadline? Yeah. This guy is, yeah. and it's just, and then other others of them. Are, this guy is super perfectionistic and it's just really slow. There is like, a
2: little bit of that, but it's there were so many fragments that they first had to be pieced together. They were darkened. They had to be laid out. Mm-hmm. You had to figure out which fragments went with what.
1: It's literally a giant
2: puzzle. So, yeah. So then maybe there were fifteen thousand fragments. Something and like got that. Got eight dudes. Yeah, and you're trying to figure out in the end that there's what, eight hundred manuscripts involved, mm. something like that. That you're trying to piece these fifteen thousand fragments together, have them photographed. And they had to be because they were sort of darkened with the ink and the skin so dark, you had to through infrared photography, which they used very early on, you could read a lot more yeah. of the of the text. So and then They were initially founded by um, money from John D. Rockefeller. Once Rockefeller died, they all had to go Mm. to their teaching institutions and then... Work stalled. Work stalled. Plus, the fragments were divided up unequally. Mm -hmm. My professor had a lot. Another uh, Roman Catholic Polish priest had a whole lot of texts. There was no way they could publish it in a single...
0: Yeah, it's like, hey, I've got pages one through seven. Karen's got, on the other side of the world, she's got page nine through 12, you know? yeah. I mean, right. obviously, that's a, I'm just trying to- Yeah,
2: and I think perfectionism was was a factor Yeah, as well.
0: Yeah, like, hey, so speed up.
2: There is a way, there is a <laughs> sense in which the delay was unconscionable. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair to say, but it wasn't a conspiracy. But because of the delay, that gives- an opportunity
0: for somebody who is thinking, hey, there's gaps here that I don't understand, right. and so I'm going to fill them in with a conspiracy theory. So, walk us through, like, how did that come about?
2: Well, in part, it's envy of other scholars who have been working on areas for which the Dead Sea Scrolls are tremendously relevant, and they're living their whole scholarly life without getting a chance to see these very relevant texts. And their theories could become irrelevant very quickly. It's there's a sort of a, a gross unfairness to for position or to that. Yeah. But there is there's a um, a particular book that was put out in 1991 that I could mention yeah. by Richard Bagant, which was entitled "The De- Dead Sea Scrolls Deception." It's subtitled. Why a handful of religious scholars conspired to suppress the revolutionary contents of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh
1: Ooh, okay. I'd read that book. <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. There's there's like intrigue there. Yeah. Like, I okay. gotta get that. And yeah. these same authors, it's Michael Bacon and Richard Lee, had earlier penned this bestseller called Holy Blood, Holy Grail. mm it was a very sensationalist thing where they researched the Grand Masters of the Knights Templar mm-hmm. and so on. And their research, I put it in yeah, yeah, quotes, yeah. became the basis of Dan Brown's The Da the Vinci, Vinci Code, which then became ah, a movie. You yeah, yeah, right. might know it as a movie. And it's some of those kind of theories behind that that is sort of behind this book, The Dead Sea Scrolls. So I think... The intrigue surrounding the Dead Sea Scrolls has to do with this kind of unspoken threat, most of the time unspoken, that the New Testament, or at least Christianity, as we understand it, will be undermined by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's this romance of these scrolls hidden away in caves for centuries and coming to light modern times and completely bypassing the traditional continuity of the way Christianity or Judaism, for that matter, has been understood over Mm -hmm. the centuries. And this notion of archaeology dealing with hard artifacts, therefore, it's something like a hard science. Mm -hmm. So, this, we can disprove Christianity. Yeah, it plays
0: well in in a scientific age.
2: I could give you a couple of quotes that actually... I think this has a lot to do with with getting at the heart of what the intrigue or mystique of the Dead Sea Scrolls is. It's hard to put your fingers on, but I think this gets to the heart of it. So let me just... Can I give you a couple quotes here from this book? Okay, so so this is from Begin and Lee's The Dead Sea Scrolls Deception. If, for example... The scrolls could be dated from well before the Christian era. They might threaten to compromise Jesus's originality and uniqueness, might show some of his words and concepts to have been not wholly his own, but to have derived from a current of thought, teaching, and tradition already established and in the air." Mm -hmm. If the scrolls dated from Jesus' lifetime, however, or from shortly thereafter, they might prove more embarrassing still. They might be used to argue that the teacher of righteousness, who's a central figure at Qumran, who figures in them, was Jesus himself, and that Jesus was not therefore perceived as divine by his contemporaries. Moreover, the scrolls contained or implied certain premises inimical to subsequent images of early Christianity. There were, for example, statements of a militant messianic nationalism associated previously only with the zealots. When Jesus was supposed to be non political, rendering unto Caesar what was Caesar's, it might even emerge that Jesus had never dreamed of founding a new religion or contravening Judaic law. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a lot of assumptions That's there. That's a lot ton of assumptions. Of assumptions. Wow. <laughs> like one after the other.
2: Right? Yeah. And so then they they imagine how heavy a responsibility. Would rest on a scroll scholar, one of these handful of scholars on this original team of editors who are burdened with this new impotence. And they say, whatever his own skepticism, could he casually and at a single stroke undermine the faith to which millions clung for solace and consolation? For DeVoe, he was the original person who appointed the team and his colleagues working as representatives of the Roman Catholic Church, it must have seemed as though they were handling the spiritual and religious equivalent of dynamite, mm. something that might just conceivably demolish the entire edifice of Christian teaching and belief.
1: Wow. <laughs> that is quite a That's statement. <laughs> so there's well and <laughs> questioning the integrity of the the scholars who are working on the scrolls and yeah. And right of course their ability to change what it says.
0: Well and I think as a student of biblical studies though, there's so many things about that that I'm like so. Yeah right. The guys his assumptions are at least on some level betraying the fact that he doesn't really understand. Yeah, what he's talking
2: about. Well, okay, let's just take the one thing of originality—the notion that Jesus has to be original. Yeah, no. Yeah. For one thing, I mean that's that's sort of a modern, it totally is uh, conception that yeah. what is original and new is good. Mm. For the ancient mindset, anything original was highly suspect.
1: Well, we were even talking recently about all the Messiah figures that there were during that time period. And it was an understanding that these people would come and claim this certain thing. And Jesus was one of those, but he was fundamentally different.
0: He was very much a product of of Second Temple Judaism. And while there was continuity in what he was saying, there was also discontinuity. But where there was discontinuity, it was really... Powerful. Really? <laughs> so to say,
1: uh,
0: Yeah. So to say that, oh, there's going to be this new information that's going to show that he wasn't original, it was like, no, there was a bunch, there was a lot about him that wasn't original.
2: Right. And the whole point of Jesus was to be a fulfillment. That's right. Yeah, he wasn't uh, if he's supposed a fulfillment, he's original. not new. He's, yeah, well, I mean, I didn't come sense. to
0: abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. Yeah. 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 Anyway. All right. Enough
2: about that. (laughs) (laughs) Go on that for a while. (laughs) What you said about the the different expectations at the time is very, very relevant because Mm -hmm. I think, especially evangelical Christians, we tend to think of uh, a messianic expectation from. The Old Testament projected into the New Testament, Jesus fulfills that. And it's kind of a single line. Mm-hmm. What we have in mind is a messianic conception that is somebody in the line of David's kingship who's going to be the final Davidic king. But the Old Testament expectation was a lot more diverse than that. There was, There's this figure of a Davidic king, but there's also a faithful priest. There's also a prophet, a prophet who's yeah. like Moses, yep. that which is more important almost than the picture of the Davidic figure. There's a possibly another figure of the a heavenly champion, such as we find in in Daniel chapter seven. There's there's the suffering servant of the later chapters of Isaiah. Yeah,
0: yeah, you have a you have a warrior king. You have a suffering servant. You have the son of man imagery. Um, You have this prophetic voice and all of those things are, have these messianic mm-hmm. undertones to them.
1: Well, right. We, and we judge them for not understanding that Jesus was the one, but we have all the information on this side of exactly. things. Exactly. So, like, yeah. we likely would have missed him too.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. Right, yeah. right. So there's a convergence of different lines of expectation from the Old Testament into the New Testament fulfilled That's in good. Jesus. Good. We can see in the, the, you know, the Qumran scrolls are dated before the coming of Jesus and we can see that they had at least they were thinking in terms of two messiahs, mm. a priestly messiah and a kind of a royal messiah. And it's the priestly messiah that may be more important for the Qumran community. And the teacher of righteousness himself is a priestly figure. Mm. Whether or not he was actually viewed as a priestly messiah is another question.
1: So help us understand what's involved in the publication process for these scrolls. So if we're saying, hey, their publishing was delayed, what, right. what are they publishing?
2: Well, I mean, the, in the official publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is put out by the Oxford Clarendon Press in a, a series called The Discoveries in the Judean Desert. And in order to publish, you don't just publish pictures of fragments, of all this 15,000 fragments. You publish what you can piece together of text and try to make sense of the text. So that involves deciphering the letter forms I mean, first of all, trying to put the text together—what belongs with what—that's maybe one of the most difficult things. And you do that that's on the b- puzzle
0: pieces, putting the yeah. Puzzle you
2: do pieces that there. on the basis of uh, the hands of the scripts, because there's more, many more than just one scribe represented. Different wear marks. Most of these scrolls are on parchment, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a, a, a treated animal skin, particularly usually the skin of a goat or a sheep, and. There's putting together that what fragments belong together in a single text. Can you create a running text? How much do you have to reconstruct to create a running text? Do you have to decipher the letters and then translating? Translating is, is relatively easy. Yeah, right. By By running
0: text, you mean... Putting these fragments together in a way where the that it makes sense as a text, yep. yeah, that
2: you make a coherent text out of it. Some of the earlier the texts I I dealt with were all in papyrus, and uh, it's almost like a barcode in mm-hmm. a in a grocery store yeah. where uh, the filaments of the papyrus reads papyrus is a plant. Papyrus is a plant that grows
0: primarily along the Nile and it's almost like a bamboo thing. Yeah.
2: Sort of like a bamboo that you cut strips out of and then you, you lay them down and then you put another layer of papyrus perpendicular to it and they're sort of glued together. But those strips of like bamboo strips are all different sizes. And then when they wear, they have characteristic patterns of wear. So that helps you to match the fragments with the other fragments. So literally you're putting a puzzle piece together. Right. Like,
0: so, oh, this is a big papyrus strip. Like <laughs> it does it clearly it doesn't match this small one. Like, right. Yeah.
2: Oh, then just as a kind of an aside, the ones that I worked with were rolled up as scrolls. So it's a papyrus text rolled up as scrolls with seals on them, like string and clay. Seals, mm-hmm. then when worms got into them and ate into them, once you unroll the scrolls, it looks like paper dolls. Yeah, right. That, okay, that's so you get this yeah. repeating pattern yeah. Yeah, where because the they worm were rolled ate. up where the worms ate <laughs> and awesome. or where the string on the seals were. Yeah. That helps you to piece pattern yeah. Uh, yeah, pieces yeah, yeah, together like into that, a pattern. That's, that's
1: well, and it's cool. worth mentioning. Like, remember the fact that these are two thousand years old. So yeah. it's not a clean, easy, quick process. Oh, yeah. like, this is material that's literally disintegrating and and falling apart. And so the delicacy that's required is probably unbelievable.
2: I mean, this kind of material, neither I mean parchment or papyrus, is not preserved archaeologically anywhere else. Except in Egypt. And uh, because of the dry Yeah, uh, dry right? climate. Yep. Which and before the around. before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, th- it was not thought that such a find could even was even possible. Yeah, yeah. Because clearly
0: uh, the stuff is gone. Right. It's just disintegrated.
2: Right. It's too perishable. Yep, right. So that's maybe part of the intrigue as well, is this kind of miraculous resurfacing of these texts in such a dry climate.
0: So to tie this up, uh, just for our time this week, generally speaking, we have this community that is producing some of these scrolls, some of them they've inherited that go all Mm -hmm. the way back to around 250 Mm -hmm. before the Common Era, and then all the way up to the Jewish revolt around 70. And then they basically just get put in these caves as the Romans come. And their their origin is, is looking at them potentially, there's potentially... Someone looking at them in the eighth century, but largely they're undiscovered. Right. As far as we know. Right. And then in 1947, this Bedouin tribe comes and starts to uncover these things. Mm-hmm. And and then you have over the last 50, you know, 60 years, you have this kind of intrigue and mystique around the Dead Sea Scrolls, where literally people will use the Dead Sea Scrolls terminology to just talk about anything that's like old or right. or mysterious right, um, and right. and so there's been some conspiracies around the dead sea scrolls and so as someone who has been on the team of editors right. and has worked directly with these scrolls has there been a conspiracy to cover these things up to hide them to
2: I would say not at all yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. But let me no. also say something i i uh, was at half price books just last week or so, yeah. and I ran into somebody who was interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls He yeah. <laughs> started talking to me. He said something <laughs> that's, like... That's an interesting encounter at Half Price right? Book. He said, well, there are like tens of thousands of scrolls that haven't been published. And, um, and I said, no, there's, you know, it's something more like in the order of 900, and they've all been published. And uh, so that's one of the thing I want to get out here is that I think the last scrolls were published in... 2009, 2010, Mm -hmm. and um, you know they're inexpensive volumes there in the official publication, but they're all available now. Good in not just there, but they're available to any of you really by uh, like in Bible software. Mm. I mean the package I know is Accordance software. They have all of the the official all the officially edited texts are available as a module. Uh, easily purchased for not that much in Hebrew. You can get a translation along with them. I know at least for the Isaiah scroll,
0: there's a website where you can go and you put your cursor on the Hebrew character and it like shows you the English word. Yeah,
2: I was going to mention in particular, a website called the Leon Levy Digital Library, Mm -hmm. where they're putting up all the scrolls Digitally and very high resolution mm. photographs, yeah. and there's a lot of information on yeah. the website. That's great. So we yeah. can
1: say with confidence the scrolls are living in the light, and right. anyone yes. can access them. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. There's no. There's, there's nothing no, hidden. There's no somebody in the basement of the Vatican trying, you know, trying to hide something that's going to destroy Christianity. It, it's just not a. That's not a coherent.
2: Right. It's
1: ludicrous. (laughs) Not a feasible option. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So hang with us because next week we are going to talk about what is actually in these and why are they so significant to us today. So y'all hang with us and we'll catch you next time.
1: Thanks for listening to the Equipping Podcast. If you liked it, tell your friends, subscribe, please send us an email. (laughs) We just want one. That's all we're looking for. Karen wants an email. Somebody email Karen. Yeah, please. At equippingpodcast at watermark.org. Is that right? Maybe that's the reason we don't get any emails.
0: That is it. Equippingpodcast at watermark.org.
1: All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.
0: Peace.